So if you haven't figured out, uh, these midweek services, they feel a little different. Um, we're going to take, for the rest of the series, uh, for these weekend uh, midweek s- services, we're going to take a different approach to, um, to a lot. I mean, we're still going to sing, we're going to gather, we're going to pray, we're, we're going to pray some prayers responsively like we have. Um, but when it comes to the message, we are going to do something a little bit different. We're going to hear from people, voices in our greater community here who are not pastors, who are going to share um, a, with a simple prompt, they're going to share who Jesus is to them. They're going to share a picture, a favorite picture of Jesus from the Gospels. And all of that starts next week, which means you're stuck with me this week. Uh, Some of you know um, that my story is uh, of faith and my relationship with Jesus really is anchored in my family's story. You've heard some of this before, and if you've heard it before, I'm not going to go into depth, and if you haven't heard it before, I'll share it just enough so that you have some reference here. Um, Part of how I've experienced Jesus is really how Jesus moved in my family's life, and I think so often in life we miss seeing God at work because we're so looking at what God is doing in me, and we're looking at God's movement in, in my life as an individual, that sometimes we miss seeing some of God's best work, how it plays out in our families, in our, in our churches, in our communities. Um, and I think that's so important because certainly for me, part of the way that God revealed himself was not directly to me. It was, it was what he did in my family's story. Uh, my family story went something like this. First, uh, my mom she was a woman who was not raised in the church at all. I'm sure she had been to church, but did not go to church, was never baptized. Um, during a really hard season of her life, one night, Jesus appeared to her in a dream and called her name. Uh, her name's Karen, by the way, but she's not one of those Karens. And he said, Karen, come to me. And she got up the next morning and said, I, I have to find a church. And that next Sunday, Um, She found a church and took me and my two sisters along with her to church, which then started me and my sister's faith story. We were lucky to have some grandparents, even though my parents were not people of the faith. We had some grandparents who, who, whenever they could, would pour into us words of faith. And so we knew a little bit about Jesus and we knew a little bit about church. But our, our journey really blossomed being a part of a faith community, actually uh, three different churches that we were a part of from the time we were little until we left the house. One was a, a small country church, very rural, very traditional. Uh, the next one was a very small suburban church. It was a church plant, only had probably about 30 people who were a part of it. And then we eventually ended up at a, a bigger suburban church that had a more progressive style of, of ministry. And all of those churches did something powerful in in my faith life. I I can't think about who Jesus is to me without thinking about how Jesus revealed himself to me through those people and in those communities. Uh, And then finally in my family, so it was my mom, and then it was me and my two sisters. And and finally, about 11 years after we came to faith, uh, my dad began to trust in Jesus through some really uh, extraordinary circumstances. It was one of those like overnight conversion things, which was so mind-blowing, and that's a story for another day. But, but it was through my family story that this is what I came to see about Jesus, that Jesus is a passionate pursuer of people. 
Like we sang in that song earlier, like there's, there's nothing that's going to get in the way. There's, there's no obstacle we can put in the way that's going to keep him from running after us with his incredible, even reckless love. And so I began to see through my family story that, that Jesus is, is this one who, who comes and finds us in obscure places, in, in hiding places, in dangerous places. He keeps pursuing us and he holds out love and life and relationship. He calls to people in dreams and he comes to people in churches and he causes people to have overnight conversions and, and he changes people's lives for the better. He's, he's willing to claim people. To call them his own, no matter where they are, no matter what situation they're in, no matter what mess they find themselves in. That was my picture of Jesus that emerged over the first part of my life. But then uh, something happened to me the longer that I was in the faith. I went to a Christian college and I studied some theology and then I went to seminary and I studied a lot more theology and strangely, the more I studied about God, the more, the more the picture I had of God that was so clear to me through my upbringing and, and through the scriptures, it started to get a little fuzzier. Because I started to imagine that, that God would be a God who would only draw near to me if I first drew near to him. If I was busy doing the hard work of faith, then God would come near to me. Then he would pursue me. And I started to, to see God as, as someone who um, didn't want to be around unclean, defiled people. And so during seasons of my life where I was kind of stuck in, in behavior and sin that was, that was you know, particularly notable, th- those were the last moments on earth I wanted to call in the name of God because I didn't want him to come into those situations and find me there. I was afraid. I was afraid of what he might do to me. I thought I could hide just like Adam and Eve in the garden. I started to believe that his goodness to me depended on my goodness. And so I tried so hard to be good. And then I would miserably fail. I'd crash and burn. And I'd try to pick up the pieces. And and I would be filled with shame and sorrow and and regret about that. And I, I would pledge to God that I would do better. I would beg him not to give up on me. See, over time, my view of Jesus became distorted. And, and I think those misperceptions that I just described are actually fairly common. I won't ask you to raise your hand. But tonight I want to challenge those misperceptions with one of my all-time favorite pictures of Jesus from the Gospels. It's hard to ask a pastor, at least it's hard to ask me, what's your favorite picture of Jesus from the gospel? It's, you know, like saying which kid of mine is my favorite. It's almost impossible, but I, I chose one that I, I love because it demonstrates the things that I've already, already mentioned, the things that I have come to know about Jesus, things that I knew intimately about Jesus from a very young age. It's from uh, Mark chapter seven. It says, Jesus left that place and he went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. So he's in this far off obscure place. And, and I kind of think of the place I grew up as a similar place. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. And she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, Jesus told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Hold on there for a second. Just reflect on those words. 
I want you to think and ask yourself the question, what is Jesus actually saying here? This woman who's got a daughter who's being afflicted and, and she comes to Jesus, she hears about him, she comes to him, she begs him for help, help me with my daughter, she's got an impure spirit. And Jesus says, first, let the, let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. What is he saying? I'll share with you later. Notice how she replies, though. She says, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. I hope you can see why I love that story. Uh, it's an amazing story. It's a miraculous story, but I also love it for another reason. I love it because it's kind of a scandalous story. Uh, Jesus is a, is a little bit snarky, and so is the woman. There, there's kind of some sarcasm or something going back and forth, and I like that. You see, here you have this woman. She's a, she's a Greek. That means she's a Gentile, and Gentiles were seen as lower class by Jewish people. They they were not the chosen people. They were sinful people. They were defiled people. They had weird practices and weird religions and they ate weird food and, and they were defiled in every way. Gentiles were even called dogs by Jewish people. It was kind of like a racial slur. And so here it's weird. You have Jesus using a, a, a racial slur to talk to this woman who comes seeking his help. It seems completely out of character. He, he calls her a dog. Is that what's going on here? But Jesus isn't actually joining in with the bigotry of his, his culture. He's not perpetuating a, a, a racist stereotype saying, hey, the children of Israel, those are the real children. All the rest of you, you're just like stray dogs. You're way down on the totem pole. Instead, he's testing something. He's testing the woman. He's testing the beliefs of even his disciples around him. Uh, to give you context, this story right before it, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus talks about what defiles a person. In Jewish culture, they were obsessed with purity. If you don't know this, they were obsessed with purity. Uh, washing your hands, making sure you were clean, making sure you only ate certain things from clean vessels, making sure you didn't touch things that were defiled, otherwise you would be defiled. And in the verses right before this, right before that section I just read to you, Jesus challenges all of the ideas about what makes something defiled. He says it doesn't happen by what you eat, what you touch, what you come in contact with, that you cannot be defiled by anything on the inside. He says instead, the things that defile you are the things that are already inside of you. Things like, he said, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. He says all these evils come from inside. And those are the things that defile a person. Rut row. I mean, if he's right, and he's Jesus, and, and I think he's right, look at that list. If those things defile a person, then I'll go out on a limb here and say that we're a room of defiled people. Even if you can't own up to the big things, certainly things like envy, slander. If you're a part of a church, you've definitely slandered someone. I mean, it's just, it just happens. 
It's really akin to gossip. Arrogance, folly, being a fool, that defiles you. And the thing about that is we here in this room find ourselves in a very similar situation to that woman then. I mean, think about it. Most of us are not Jewish by heritage. Maybe a few of us are. Most of us are from Gentile origin. We're non-Jewish people. By Jesus' definition, we're all defiled by the things that live inside of us and often spill out of us. You didn't know you were going to come in on Ash Wednesday and have such a hit to your self-esteem, did you? But but actually, um, how we think about self-esteem is pretty misguided. Our usual approach to self-esteem goes something like this. In order to feel good about me, I can't believe that there's anything wrong with me. Right? In order to feel good about me, I can't believe there's anything bad in me. It's an all-or-nothing approach, which is, which is a way to cultivate a very fragile sense of self-esteem. <laughs> because if I believe that in order to feel good about me, in order to feel worthy or loved or valuable, there can't be anything wrong with me, then the moment I encounter something wrong, until someone points out a fault in my life or I see it within myself, then my, my, my self-esteem is fr- it's shattered. Or I can take the alternate path, where I can just live the rest of my life lying to myself. I can live in deception and, and just downplay and say, I'm not defiled, I'm fine, I'm great, I'm good. I can lie to myself over and over again. See, see what, what true self-esteem is, is not, hey, I, I can't look at any of the bad stuff. It's, it's being able to look at the worst parts of me, looking at the things that defile me. And I can look at those things without flinching or wincing because I believe I'm still worth something anyway in God's sight. See, true self-esteem says there may be some things that defile me, but they don't define me. I'm loved by God. Uh, In these days, uh, all the time as a church, we get asked, you know, what's our stance on on this issue or this kind of people or this, this, uh, you know, this question. And and, uh, here at Pathfinder, we say this, we resist stances. And we do that not because we're afraid to take a stand. We stand on Jesus. We stand on his death and resurrection. We just sang about that too. But but we watch Jesus' approach all of the time. Jesus is being pumped by Pharisees and Sadducees and people with an agenda, and they're trying to get him to take a stance on something. Jesus, should we pay taxes? What's your stance on taxes? Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery. What's your stance on adultery? Jesus, what's your stance on on divorce? And every time Jesus defies their request to take a stance and and to give a position statement because Jesus doesn't stand for ideas. He stands for people. And so for us as a church, we we get asked this. And and one of the questions that we get asked is, um, are are you an affirming church? And and I always think, and sometimes I respond, affirming of what? Affirming of the value of all people, that all humans are created in the image of God and loved by God as as, as, as loved by their creator? Then yeah. Or affirming that we are all universally sinful, that we are all people who are defiled. We're we're all people who hurt ourselves, hurt other people in our lives, who don't give God the honor that he deserves, don't don't put him in the right place in our lives, even though he's given us everything. We don't don't thank him. We don't respect him for it. Affirming of that, yeah, I, I can affirm that. Affirming of God's love for all people, God's mercy and grace for all people of all situations, no matter what, absolutely. And, and, and when I answer that way, I can tell they're disappointed. It wasn't the answer that they were looking for. But it's a better answer. It's a way more important answer. It's, it's the most freeing, gracious, inclusive answer in the world because it's an answer we all need to hear. 
So we get ourselves in trouble when, when we, like the disciples, start to put people in camps and we're the children of God and those people are dogs. And, and here Jesus is testing this whole thing out. And here's what's amazing to me. This, this Greek woman who's been the object or, or the, the object of uh, Jewish prejudice for a long time, this one that Jewish people would call dogs, defiled, somehow she had learned that in spite of all of that, she had, she had a claim on Jesus's goodness. So she comes boldly and she makes a request and she says, you know what, even if it's true that the Jews are the rightful children of God and I'm just, I'm nothing better than a stray dog. Here's what she knew. She knew that Jesus's love and goodness was so big that even crumbs would be more than enough for her. And so that's what she says. Fine. You think I'm a dog? Here's what I know about you. That even if I'm a dog, you're so good that you have more than enough for me. And in that moment, in that response, the act is over. You know, Jesus is kind of playing everyone up and he's watching the responses. He's, he's testing them and he drops character right away. He, he, I love the way Matthew actually says it. It's even clearer in the same account. He says, woman, not dog, woman. You have great faith, exclamation mark, exclamation point, right? You have great faith. And he's saying that with his disciples all around, these people are following him around, these, these Jewish people who should get it, and they don't get it because they still think that what defiles them defines them, and they're still playing by the rules and the traditions, and, and they're worried about chasing God away or earning God or drawing God in or pushing him back. Like, And here's this woman, this unlikely woman, and she... She gets it. Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. Jesus can't hold back his praise because here's this woman, this unlikely woman in a far-off forgotten place who sees him as he really is. This is, this is important for us to hold on to um, tonight for Ash Wednesday. Uh, we say that we're ashes, that we're dust, and to dust we will return. We even make a, a mark on our foreheads of ash. And, and that's a statement of truth. In the grand scheme of things, we are only here for a very small amount of time. The Bible says we're but a mist or a vapor that appears and then is gone. No matter what we do, how, how great, most of us will be forgotten within three generations. Maybe that's offensive to you. To me, that is a mercy. <laughs> no matter how badly I mess it up, no one's going to remember me three generations from now. I'm grateful for that. We're dust. And to dust we will return. It's an important thing for us to acknowledge our smallness. But that doesn't mean that we don't matter. And it doesn't mean, acknowledging that we're dust, it doesn't mean that we deserve to be treated like dirt. See, it would be a mistake to wear ashes on our head in a shame-filled way, like a scarlet letter given from God to, to tell the whole world how rotten we are and how defiled we are and how unlovable we are walking around marked in that way. Instead, receiving a mark of ashes on your forehead, the mark of the cross, it's precisely because we know how loved we are. It's not until you know how loved you are by God. It's not until you know that you have unconditional acceptance from him. 
It's not until you understand the character of God that there's nothing that will get in the way of his pursuit of you. Not angels or demons or death or life and not your sin, not not the things that defile you. They will not get in the way of him pursuing you, holding out life to you. It's not until you know that that you can actually do, do what's called an honest inventory of your life and you can look within yourself and you can start to see the things that are inside of you that defile you, the things that cause injury to you and the people around you. It's not until you know how loved you are that you can do that honestly and not feel threatened that those things will somehow define you or disqualify you from God's love. See, tonight, if you don't know how loved you are, then don't receive ashes on your forehead because it's going to send the wrong message to you and to the world. We make the outside match the inside tonight in humility before God because we know it doesn't change a thing for him, but it might change something for us. If we can go to him and say, with this need, just like the woman did, I have a need, there's something unclean in my unclean in my house and and I need you to deal with it because you're good because you're for me so how do you see Jesus I hope you know the Jesus that I've come to know because that's the Jesus that the scriptures testify to that he is a passionate pursuer of people and he's not scared off by anything that defiles us and said he's so good that he's, he's got goodness to spare. He's got goodness for anyone who wants it. And I hope you know that even a crumb of his goodness is more than enough for everything that you need. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for this account. It's an important reminder for me Uh, In my life, I've been called things. I've called myself things. I've counted myself out. I've excluded myself from your love. I've imagined that I'm beyond your reach. And yet, Jesus, through the story of this woman who comes to you boldly knowing that you're good and you're loving and you will not turn her away, that your goodness, that your goodness is also for her. Lord, we're reminded to be bold to be bold in approaching you and to be bold in opening our lives up to you, to be bold in doing a self-examination tonight and throughout Lent, to taking an inventory, to be bold and inviting you in to help us do the work that will bring us more life and bring the people around us more life. That will make us bold to do all of that and know that it doesn't change our standing one centimeter in your, in your sight. That you already love us and will never be more loved than we are right now. God, thank you uh, for giving us this picture tonight. Lord Jesus, thank you for it. And I pray that it would be an inspiration for us as we journey ahead in the days to come. That when we are afraid of the things in us that defile us, that the darkness that lives inside of us, that when we fear it, when we want to hide it, when we want to deny it instead, we'd be reminded that, yes, in spite of all of that, those things that defile us, they do not define us, that we are loved. You call us by another name. And that as deeply loved children, we would have the courage to do some of the work. Lord, 
Lord Jesus, I thank you that you're a passionate pursuer of all people. I'm grateful that you came into my life and you found each member of my family and you brought them into a relationship with you in your own time. And Lord Jesus, I'm grateful that you still do that to me every day. That every day you're, you're calling me, you're pursuing me. You're inviting me back into a relationship with you. You're inviting me to step into a deeper relationship with you. Lord, may this season of Lent be a journey into your love, into the depths of your love, into all of the good things, the growth and the healing and the transformation that are a part of it. I pray this, Lord Jesus, in your powerful name. Amen.